Hi, this is Bill Crystal. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. I wanted to tell you about a new program I've begun with the Foundation for Constitutional Government. It's called Conversations, and I invite leading figures in American political and intellectual life for in-depth discussions. Recent ones we've had include Vice President Dick Cheney, General Jack Keane, and Peter Thiel. You can find these and all the conversations online at our website, which is conversationswithbillcrystal.org. They're also available on YouTube and on iTunes. So if you register at the website, conversationswithbillcrystal.org, we'll send you emails to alert you to the new ones we add every two weeks. I think you'll enjoy them. Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us from the Weekly Standard is Jay Cost, numbers cruncher extraordinaire and political strategist. Jay, how you doing? I'm great, Michael. How are you? I'm uh, better than the Republican leadership, which is still stumbling and bumbling about how to respond to President Obama's uh, uh, amnesty, de facto amnesty executive orders. And two, in their defense, I mean, what the president is doing is so arrogant. It's it's like go big and go home. Boy, has he gone big. It's so unconstitutional. It's so out there. It really is almost... It's hard to figure out a way to stop it without doing something equally as big, and it appears, Jay, that the Republicans think that's a non-starter. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's ultimately the problem that they have, um, is that to do something without Obama's consent, because, I mean, that's ultimately what we're talking about here. They can't pass a law and say what the president did is inappropriate and it is hereby rescinded because the president will just veto it. So the re- the tool that they have in their toolbox is to withhold something that the president needs. And the problem with that, of course, is that if the president needs it, quote-unquote, uh, you know, there's a good chance that the rest of the country thinks it's necessary. So, And this is a, you know, historically the problem with government shutdowns, is that you're withholding something from the president, but there's a lot of collateral damage. Uh, th- I mean, I see what you're saying, and you know, certainly the politics of government shutdowns, it's pretty widely accepted, and I've seen two of them where the Republicans are always going to pay a price. But what about the argument, and Mark Thiessen tried to go this way in the Washington Post today, where he, he said, look, take the specific parts of this that drive people crazy. For example, the fact that these um, uh, uh, special treated, specially treated illegal immigrants will now have access to Social Security uh, benefits and other government benefits. Why not uh, essentially uh, uh, take what the president has said and say, that's fine. Now, we're going to attach a rider to it. You can do it, but you can't go beyond this. You can't give them government benefits. And then make the president veto on behalf of government benefits for people who cheated to get into the system. Well, I mean, that's certainly one thing you could do. Um, you know, of course, the problem with that is what if the president decides to sign into the law? Uh, number one, um, you know, because of course there's a lot of moving pieces in terms of an immigration reform proposal, and and, and you know, allowing a big chunk of it to get through via an executive amnesty, uh, executive amnesty, is risky politically, uh, you know, because it's going to shift the terms of the debate. But but beyond that, it, it's implicitly conceding to the president. Uh, that what he did was lawful. If if Congress turns around and legalizes it ex post, it's something that they were not otherwise inclined to do, uh, simply because they wanted to, you know, prevent the most obnoxious things from happening. You know, that's just going to encourage the president in the future. Hey, I can, you know, bust through the constitutional barriers, and Congress will compromise with me. You know, it's a, that's a dangerous precedent. And I think something to keep in mind here, Michael, is that there's sort of two tracks on which this debate has to happen. I mean, the first one is 
the track of immigration reform. And that's, of course, what uh, Thiessen, I think, is his main point here is that, you know, he really, you know, bounded over a lot of established boundaries of what a reform proposal would look like. Uh, you know, there's that track, but then there's also the separation of powers track, and there's the idea that the president is not a king and that he is not the lawgiver, uh, that that is Congress's job. And, and for Congress to sort of, you know, cut a deal with the president uh, might advance the immigration inch, the immigration track a little bit. I don't know. You know, it depends on the contours of a deal, but it will unequivocally damage the, the separation of powers argument, which I think, frankly, Michael, I'm more concerned about that. You know, immigration is an issue is going to fade. Fifty years, immigration is not going to be an issue. Fifty years ago, um, immigration was not an issue. Uh, 50, but, but 50 years ago, separation of powers was an issue. Fifty years from now, separation of powers will be an issue. Separation of powers is one of our most cherished principles. It is the foundation, the bedrock of our constitutional regime. It is embedded within our entire uh, our entire philosophy of governance depends upon separation of powers. And, and Congress, you know, look, either they're going to stand up for separation of powers or they're not. Okay, Jay, 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 hang on. I'm getting a flash in. It's just came across my desk. They're not. Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid have made it perfectly clear that when Democrats are in control, we have a parliamentary system, that there is no separation of power, that Congress is an instrument of the administration. They've already made that explicitly clear. We've, they, 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 I mean, they haven't said the sentence, but they've governed exactly. In other words, the days of people acting on behalf of the, of the institution, the power of the Senate itself, are over. They're just done because Harry Reid is what was more than happy to uh, to put the Senate to work and uh, allow their allow its power to be abrogated by the White House. And not just that, but the Republicans, when they control the Congress, were more than happy to give sticky issues to the White House if they could avoid it or to the courts and let the courts handle it. So in the gutless era of today, Jay Cost, isn't it time to just simply acknowledge we've moved to a proto-parliamentarian system, in which case the right thing for the Republicans to do with immigration and today is to think completely short term, how can we act today that will help in the 2016 election so that we can win the upcoming parliamentary election for control of the government? Well, okay, there's a lot to unpack in your question, which is a good one. Um, I would say that there's there's a crucial distinction here. So we're, this is not... This is not moving toward a parliamentary system. This is moving to a system without a legislature, right? I mean, there's a crucial distinction here between what Harry Reid did and what, you know, Republicans under uh, Denny Hassert did with George W. Bush and the, uh, compared to what's happening right now. The distinction is Congress consented to those, uh, to those actions. So in this instance, Congress is not consenting. In fact, you know, this whole this whole situation has arisen because Congress refused to consent to the to to send to the demands of the president and then he went ahead and did them anyway. So that that makes this qualitatively different. You know, now we can debate whether or not, you know, movement towards a parliamentary system is a good or bad thing. I happen to think it's not a good thing. No, I think it's uh, horrible, but I want to be clear. Under President Bush, Republicans uh, stifled debate, debate even in their own membership, and said, we are going to make sure that the president gets the laws he needs 
period. Right. They did right. not say, for example, whoa, 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 this Patriot Act stuff. It's gonna, no, they said, Mr. President, tell us what you need, and then we will use the political system to muscle it for you. Now, I agree that they did muscle it, and so they did theoretically act, but they were more than happy to say, we'll let the president take the, the, the flack for homeland security and for increased surveillance. We'll be happy to let him have the blame. Congress doesn't want to do the heavy work. They've already shown they're not going to. So, Jay, I think, isn't it a little too late to start saying we need to act on principle to preserve the institutions? Isn't it time for the Republicans to just pick up their, uh, their brass knuckles and wade in and say, we're here to beat the Democrats? No, I don't think so. And again, I, because I think there's a there's a distinction here. I mean, there's a, there's an enormous distinction, which is, you know, we can object and we can say that Congress should not have assented to the president, uh, to President Bush, or to President Obama, and as is the case with Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid. But in this instance, there is no, there was no congressional consent, and that's a huge difference in our system of government because, you know, look, Nancy Pelosi and congressional Democrats consented to. Uh, you know, Obamacare. And as a result, they were driven out of office, right? The same thing happened with, uh, you know, congressional Republicans and George W. Bush. They were rebuked. Uh, the public had an opportunity to use uh, congressional elections um, to rebuke people who had consented to a course of government that they objected to. Uh, but with what Obama has done is that we have 536 elections for national office. We have 100 Senate elections, we have 435 congressional elections, and we have one presidential election. And what President Obama has done implicitly with this action is that, at least in the policy domain of immigration, he is arguing that of the 536 elections that this country has had in the last, two, uh, the last four years, only one of them matters that 535 out of 536 are irrelevant. That is a dangerous, dangerous precedent, and it is different than what has happened when party, parties in the White House and the, and the Congress are in sync and Congress consents. Here, Congress has denied consent, and the president went and acted anyway. I agree this with you. Major, but because major problem. But because Harry Reid is the head of the Senate branch of the parliament and has no interest in saying what any senator who cared about the Senate would say, which is, Mr. President, I agree with your policy, but you just can't do it this way. You can't take our power. Then we're already there, which brings me to this, the other question I want to ask you, Jay. This, you know, President Obama, I think, is going to end up winning in the short term in the sense that the Republicans aren't going to find a way to stop this, uh, this amnesty. But I wonder if he's not paying a price, particularly for the Democratic Party in 2016. And it go, the story that you've, I've, I've heard, the argument I've heard that I think is pretty compelling goes like this. The activists who turned out in astonishing numbers uh, among his constituent groups, minority voters, young women, uh, you know, uh, hardcore liberals, etc., they love this stuff, and so they pushed him over the hill in 2008 and 2012. But it drives moderate voters, particularly blue-collar white voters, absolutely crazy. They hate it, and President Obama's numbers among them, I think, are down in the mid-20s. Well, in 2016, someone's going to be running for president of the Democrat other than Barack Obama. They're not going to be able to rebuild a coalition, and in fact, they're going to find themselves in an untenable position. Uh, un, you know, uh, 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 white, white voters and moderate voters who are very reluctant to even think about voting for a Democrat and then not enough of these special interest voters 
to uh, to surge again and have their turnout numbers make up for the uh, gap in numbers with pure passion. Is that where you think you've you've watched the trends on how people feel about the parties, et cetera? Do you think that that's a legitimate concern for the Democrats? Yeah, I think it's a legitimate concern. Um, I, I think that something that has to be borne in mind when we you know when we consider um, presidential electoral politics is how contingent they are upon uh, the people who run. Now, that might sound weird, I mean, because we're sort of been trained by years of the media to sort of tell us, oh, you know, what really matters is the state of the economy, presidential job approval, whether or not there's a war or scandal, and so on and so forth. All of that is true in the main. All of that is basically true. But what you can see underneath the surface are variations within, uh, you know, um, uh, and the, the entire national moves sort of systematically by those big macro forces, but groups underneath will move will move differently. It depends on who's actually running. So, I mean, a great example of this and why re- Republicans shouldn't count their chickens before they're hatched um, is that if you look at you know Mitt Romney's share with with the white working class, considering how sour the white working class is on the president, they didn't really show up for Obama, for Romney, at least not in the numbers he needed in Ohio and Wisconsin. Um, so, you know, that's something to bear in mind. And, uh, you know, so what, and what it means is that 2016, yes, the president standing with the white working class or whatever group that we're talking about is going to be hugely influential. But it will also matter whom the Republicans nominate and whether that nominee can appeal to these groups that are have soured on the president. And it also matters whom the Democrats nominate. I mean, if they nominate Hillary Clinton and she turns out to, you know, successfully be tagged as a, as a sort of a corporate standard, you know, friend of Goldman Sachs and so on and so forth, that's going to hurt. But on the other hand, you know, she manages to channel some of her husband's populist magic. That'll probably mitigate it. So I, I think a lot remains to be seen on that front because if you look, like I said, if you look over the history of presidential elections, it is really interesting to see how different regions of the country and different subgroups respond to the actual candidates who have been nominated. No, I, I agree with that completely, and which is why I love freaking people out by saying if only Rick Santorum had run in 2012 instead right. of Mitt Romney. Uh, well, even if he had... And look, I mean, by the way, Hillary's going to have a problem. I, I, I think it stands to reason she's going to have a problem with the black vote, mm-hmm. which is to say, you know, she, she will win the black vote overwhelmingly. But, you know, Barack Obama won 95% of the black vote and got mm-hmm. enormous turnout among African Americans, and it remains to be seen whether or not um, a, a Democrat who's not an African American will be able to do that. And, you know, John Kerry got 88, 88% of the black vote, which is about what Bill Clinton got. Uh, if Hillary Clinton gets 88% again, at first glance, that'll look fantastic, but in fact, it'll probably reduce her overall margins by about a point or so. And uh, which we, brings us to this interesting final notion that after you know, a nonstop reporting from the political press that the Tea Party fringe was destroying the Republican Party and making it unelectable, and you know the party was going to be annihilated. You know, for the, the Whig Party for the future. Isn't it fascinating that it could end up actually being the Barack Obama Liz Warren wing of the party that undermines the Democrats at least in 2016 by having lots of moderate voters, white blue collar voters, perceive the party as this elitist special interest I don't care about you I don't care about the fact you have to compete with illegal immigrants for jobs I don't care about what these uh, crazy policies are doing to you I don't care about the cost of your health care sucks to be you and the cause of ideology it would be I would just love watching the media not report that story Jay it would be great yeah that that's a hugely important um, 
you know, development that's, that's happened over a couple generations in the Democratic Party uh, that has gone really underreported. I mean, historically, the Democrats were the party of labor unions and farmers, right? And they're not anymore. Farmers are gone, and labor unions are mostly gone. Uh, and the Democrats are a different coalition now. I mean, they're, mi- they're minority voters, but they're also these upscale, socially liberal white voters uh, and very wealthy white voters with with the priorities that socially upscale very wealthy whites have, which are you know not really in keeping with the populist message that Democrats run on. You know, you look at Democratic opposition to Keystone Pipeline that reflects a gentry liberal sensibility. You know, uh, their emphasis on immigration and 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 sort of you know bringing in as many immigrants as they can get is sort of this weird kind of combination of gentry liberal concerns that you know capital owners have because they want cheap labor and then they're they're um you know their minority base so uh, it, it, for for years that this has been happening within the democratic party there's been this transition of the democratic party away from this populist farmer labor coalition this strange top bottom coalition uh, and and democrats have been able to sort of cover up for this for a long time with with populist rhetoric rhetoric that still manages to persuade people uh and and it really it's an open question as to whether or not that will continue to happen and a lot of it michael a lot of it depends upon whether or not the republican party is what ready to reform itself and to reform its own crooked relationships with special interest groups and therefore be in a better position to call the democrats out for the ways that they that their positions run contrary to the middle class. Well, after seeing the reporting this week that we were looking at either a George Pataki or a Jeb Bush or another run by Mitt Romney, the GOP is certainly the party of the future, Jay Cost. (laughs) And I look forward to proudly voting for the Dole McCain ticket in 2016 if the establishment has its way. I'm looking forward to the election of 1996. (laughs) Jay Cost, (laughs) thanks so much for joining us on this Weekly Standard podcast my pleasure. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.